Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Mean O'Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Welcome back, welcome back, black, 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 like I never left, black once again, uh, black always and forever. It's another wonderful episode of the Black Home of the Law. It's your host, the one and only Carl Anthony Payne. Uh, today's guest comes to us by way, I believe, of New Jersey. That's right, sir. Yes. By way of New Jersey, please welcome to the show. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Edward Steed. Thank you so much. How you doing today, man? You good? I'm great. Thank you for asking. And glad to be here. Awesome. 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 All right. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and uh, how you got started. Well, I'm from originally from North New Jersey. Uh, my wife and I now live in Ocean County, New Jersey. I uh, attended school, of course, in North. Never planned on going to college or anything like that. My dad was had a third grade education. My mom had an eighth grade education. So it wasn't in the culture, but I was, I was very uh, I was a very good student. And one of my teachers taught me into going to college. And to get him to be quiet, I went across the street from my high school, which was Central High School in Newark. And that's where the Newark campus of Rutgers University is. And I went there, did one year, went in the U.S. Army, became a uh, correctional specialist. uh, And that led me to become a military policeman. That was my introduction into law enforcement. And once I got discharged in 1978, 43 years ago. Yes, I'm dating you myself. Out, you spitting out dates like you spitting out dates like Abe Lincoln, bro. You, you look yeah, like you, you know. About, you look like you're about 37 over there talking about yeah, four score and seven years ago when I was. There. <laughs> man, I got to pay no. you for that. <laughs> no, I'm yeah, serious, it was a long man. Time I mean, ago. If, if you was, listen, listen. You, if you look up black, don't crack. There'll probably be a picture of you, a picture of me. <laughs> And a few others. Amen. But I mean, man, man. God bless you. Okay, so God bless you. So yeah, around blows 78. My 78, 43 years ago. Yes. But I, mm-hmm. I went to uh when I got discharged, I went to see a job counselor and they sent me to these different places. The postal inspectors was one of those places. Found out I did not qualify, but I applied again. Nine years later, in 1987, uh, actually, it was 1986. That, uh, do I have a moment? I want to go through something real quick with that. Go for it. Is, is that go it? for it. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, please. In, in 1986, I had been uh, married for a moment, and my wife was extremely sick. She had breast cancer. And I thought at that time, I was working actually for the Postal Service, and I thought at that time that while the Postal Inspection Service provided a great opportunity in my eyes uh, with my background and everything, I didn't want to apply because she was sick and I didn't know what was going to happen. But on the very last day that I could apply, and I remember the date, it was July 1st, 1986, I said, I better go ahead and apply because I don't know what's going to happen with my wife. 
And lo and behold, I applied. I took the test in October. My wife, unfortunately, passed away at a very young age in February of 87. And I had two little kids and uh, they're like 37 and 41 now <laughs> so, uh, and doing well. God, uh, God be praised. But uh, my, a month after my wife died, the postal inspectors called me because at that particular time, I think they were heavily uh, into recruiting uh, minorities. So they contacted me and I, got, I did score high on the exam. And uh, I went to what we call an assessment process, which is an all day test. It's an eight hour test. A lot of practical stuff is really rough. And I thought I had failed it, but they said, no, you passed. You're good. And they called me and said, you can start on August if you want. And the, the first day of class was August 3rd, 1987, which was my 31st birthday. That was the first day I set foot in the class. Wow. And the, the rest is uh, wow. history, as they say. You know, and I, of course, that's, that's I think I shared with you. Yeah. I went to the FBI after, uh, after 9-11 for a couple of years and I work full time there, but that's another story. Oh, no, no. that's going to be a story that we talk about today. That's okay. going to be a story we talk about today. Not for me. Yeah. So first yes. of all, my, first of all, uh, my condolences, you know. Um, Thank you, sir. Um, that's, uh, you know, as you say, it's almost like certain things kind of lined up the way they were supposed to line yes. up. I think it was interesting that you said that you didn't qualify the first time around. Well, it was 78. And you're still the same color you are today, which is probably why you didn't qualify then. Amen. Uh, you, you know, you didn't qualify. Because I, I was thinking, what do you mean you didn't qualify? What, 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 what different? What thing? I can actually what? clear that up, though. What you happened was I had a uh, I had a two year degree in 1978 that I got while I was in the army. The postal inspectors required a four-year degree. So on me, if I had read thoroughly enough, I would have seen that. However, the the uh, young lady who took my application in, it probably would have been nice if she told me that. And she was one of us, but that's another story. And, uh, but I went, you know, went about my business doing living life. And I, I ended up back gotcha. in the postal service without even planning it. So gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And then and how long, how long, how long were you with the service? I didn't do the math. How long? Postal 22 service? years. Oh, with the, my total time with the postal service was uh, 25 years. Wow. Yeah, I did three years in a regular postal service and 22 years as an investigator, as an inspector. What does that job entail? That is a far more interesting job than anyone realizes. We we are we are charged, and inspectors today are still charged with this task to investigate anything that involves the United States mail, and it could be a remote nexus to it. It doesn't have to be like a direct involvement. Quick examples: uh, if you ever saw the movie, I think it was made in nineteen ninety five or nineteen yeah nineteen ninety five Wall Street. The insider mm -hmm. trading movie. Mm -hmm. At the very, very end, when Charlie Sheen's character, I think it's Bud Fox, he gets arrested. The guys who arrest him are postal inspectors because that insider trading thing has a nexus to the mail. Because in those days, you could not transact that kind of business without using the mail. Nowadays, we got the computers. But in those days, you had to use the mail. So we investigate things like that. Then you got your uh, your postal robberies, identity theft. We were one of the first agencies to investigate identity theft. And back in the day before computers, everything went through the mail. Checks, credit cards, everything. And it kept yeah, me extremely busy. So so was there was there ever a um, high profile case that you worked on 
on or anything that's like that the audience, including myself, you know, <laughs> would love to yes. hear about. Tell me one. Tell me uh, a story. Leona, do you know Leona Helmsley? Yes. That, that we worked that case with the IRS in conjunction with the IRS. And uh, it was very convoluted. There's certain things I can't obviously uh, disclose, but I can tell you this. It was very convoluted the way they, her and Harry handled their taxes. And, you know, and they used the mail. This is in the, the, the 1980s. There were no computers, but the way they handled their taxes and they claimed their uh, um, deductions, it was not legal. And it was something that we were charged with asking now, uh, with investigating rather. And I was asked to go out there with another inspector to go out to uh, a property to determine if an item on that property, a big item, could be like a swimming pool or something like that. You know what I'm saying? If that item was where the taxes indicated it was, because if it was where the taxes indicated it was, then it's a legitimate business write-off. So I'm going to leave that aspect of the story at this. It was not where they said it was. <laughs> so, so I had to take photos and get plans and all of that to prove my point. And uh, that was my part in that. But believe it or not, even as a postal inspector, Carl, I worked a lot of uh, street stuff back in those days. Because there was a lot of street stuff going on and people were dibbling and dabbling, mixing it up. I worked in Harlem, you know, uh, people were mixing it up like somebody could be involved in drugs on the, on the right hand and on the left hand. You know, they're, they're doing this credit card thing. They're doing the, the stolen checks thing. You know, it, it was it was very interesting. One of my I worked a lot of undercover. I was able to get in places because I'm kind of versatile. I was able to get in places black, white and different that other people couldn't penetrate. If I may, and this is not a famous person, but this is one of my one of my many favorite cases that I worked in Harlem. So I worked a lot undercover and I'm primed for this undercover job. And like I said, not just in our community, which I'm from Newark, New Jersey. So I'm familiar with, you know, how you roll in our community, you know, how you walk, how you carry yourself, how you conduct yourself. I'm familiar, very familiar with that. But also I've I've been around a lot of other people, diverse peoples. So I know how to conduct myself in almost any environment. So I did undercover in several environments. But my favorite one, one of them was when I had to work in cooperation with uh, a detective from New York City. And at that time, she was about 55 years old. She's short, like 5'3", weighs about 250 pounds. And she knows how to speak the street lingo. But what our job was is these guys, they own liquor stores and travel agencies up in Harlem. And they're, they, what they were doing was they were getting people in the community who were hard up. Crack was a thing then. People were doing everything. And they would buy those checks for them for like 10% on a dollar. So if you somebody showed up with $1,000, these guys would give them $10 and they buy it. And the check stolen from the mail, like a treasury check, a tax refund, but primarily Social Security or some kind of... Uh, a welfare check from the state. So they would buy these checks for $10 on an hour. Uh, ten, sorry, uh, $10, 10 cents on the dollar. So she would go into these establishments, particularly the liquor stores, and she would sell the check to them. I would video it. Now, how would I do that? This is why I love this case. And I'm giving up a trade secret. <laughs> I put an earring in my ear, <laughs> a cigarette in my ear, Baseball cap on backwards, shoulder bag with the with the uh, camera there. But here's the key. This is why nobody never thought I was the police. I only wore one shoe. Did you ever see? <laughs> if you ever had any foot procedures or you know anyone has had a foot procedure, something serious, they don't wear, they, they can't wear a shoe on that foot. They wear those foot foolers. 
They look like flip-flops. I would wear one of those and carry a cane. Brother, nobody never picked me out. People would be trying to help me, man. You know, and that was one of my favorite cases. And it was uh, 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 several million dollars involved in that. And uh, when we took them down, we took them all down at the same time. The liquor stores and the other business establishment that this family had. And they were from uh, South America. They weren't even from here. But uh, but we took them all down. And that was one of my favorite cases. I, I got lots of world stories, but that was what I wanted to throw in. We love war stories, man. That's beautiful. We love those stories. Yeah. Those are favorite, you know. Because I think I think the thing is, man, you know, like like you know, you, you like you said, you know, your job is pretty exciting and, and more interesting than most people would, you know, uh, right. assume, you know, and, and not right. even understand how things can be uh, associated with something so far fetched in their mind or you know the layman's mind. One of the interesting things about what you said is, I remember, I remember, you know, I grew up in Harlem, so I, I remember, right. Everything that you're talking about right now, I'm like, right. yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I, remember, I remember that. Yeah, that little travel All agency right. called. Yeah. What was the agency called, too? It was a couple of them. Because I remember, I don't want to say any names right now. I don't even remember. But, I remember the name of one because there were many and they were all yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were, they, I was. Exactly. Because wow. I, I, re- I remember I remember having to go there to plan with my mom to plan a trip one time. You know what I'm saying? Well, so and I'll be looking like these people don't look like they can afford to go nowhere. Right. Oh, yeah, it, remember, it was something. Remember, remember the Travelers Express agencies? Yes, of remember course. those? Of course. Yeah, there was several of them. Yes. Wow. I wish okay. I had known you didn't. I would have been like picking your brain. <laughs> so, <laughs> Man. Yeah, it was very um, interesting. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, we. I love to hear those kind of stories, man. Um, so, talk to me about. Uh, well, well, let's 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 go forward to go backwards to go forward. So you said you joined. Okay. The, uh, you joined the military first, right? But what was your reasoning? Or what was the catalyst yes. for joining the military? You know, Carl. To tell you the truth, it was kind of frivolous, but it, it was what it was. Uh, and that in those days, you know, I was a young man. You know full of vigor. You know, I'm trying to find my way. I did one year at Rutgers University in Newark, as I said. Didn't work out too well for me at Rutgers. It was okay, but it wasn't what I was accustomed to. I was a pretty uh, astute kind of dude. But Rutgers was like a little bit over my head for being so young. And uh, Mm -hmm. I had a girlfriend at that time that was like my childhood sweetheart that I had dated her for like four years. And I wasn't doing the right thing. That's another Oprah, another time. But she finally got sick of me and it was like, get. So I'm like, okay, I'm not doing well in school. My girlfriend took off on me. My mom's just busting my chops constantly. I got to do something. And I started looking to go to schools elsewhere. And I ran into this article on, on a Sunday afternoon talking about Project Ahead, Army Help for Educational Advancement and Development, Project Ahead. And I said, I think I want to do that. Well, in the early run, brother, that was a mistake hmm. because the Army, and I know you you, you interviewed my boy recently, uh, Corey Pugis, and I know he can hmm. attest to this. I even heard him say when the Army time was over, he ran. The Army is rough, especially in the beginning. My dad oh, was uh, was uh, Air Force, and he said, hey, let me tell you something, son. This is the only branch you want to be a part of. That is the truth. And the food is good in the Air Force. <laughs> so, But when I went in the Army, man, I'm in there like three days and I'm like, what have I done? This I didn't have to do this. This is crazy. You belong to the same now. Yeah. 
But here's something interesting that happened. Everybody there just about is really anxious to get out of there in some kind of way. People are even scheming to get out. Like, oh, I got this, I got that, you know, I got to go, you know. It was bad because they, they really like, they brutalize you. But this for a purpose. But anyway, I ended up, I had flat feet when I went in. But when I took the physical fitness exam, there were so many people in this room. There's like 200 people that I was able to secrete myself in the back of the room so they couldn't see that I was having difficulty with some of those exercises. Well, after about two, three weeks in the army, I had to go to sick bay. And the medic looked at my feet and he said, dude, you, you, you want to get out the army? And I was like, you mean I can get out? And he says, yeah, I'll just say the word. And I don't know why I said this to this day. I said, is it okay if I think about it? And he said, yeah, just take a day or two, but that's it. I called my dad and my father, who never wanted me to go in the army in the first place. He said, oh, yeah, man, come on home. And I'm happy. I'm like, I'm going home. But when I let, when I hung up that phone and I went back to uh, my barracks, you know what I thought? It's vain. It was very vain, but it worked. I said, if I go home to Newark and I'm sitting at that window doing the same thing I had done for many years prior, and I look downstairs and I see some dude walking down the street with a uniform on, I'm going to be like, I didn't make it. And that's what made me decide to stay. And when I got discharged in 78, I got discharged as a sergeant. And my son, who was actually in the Iraq war, when he got discharged like 10 years ago, he was a sergeant. And I think my experience made him go ahead and do it. But that's a long-winded way of saying this is what I did, why I did it, and why I stuck right. with it. And then, and then what made you want to join the FBI? Now, that's another story. <laughs> the uh, You remember 9-11, of course. You know, oh, yeah. the attack on the World Trade Never, for, never forget. Right. Exactly. That's right. Yes. I was actually in the East Orange Police Department that morning working on a case. And uh, before I left my office, I left early in the morning to go to East Orange Police. The first plane had struck. When I got to East Orange Police, I'm meeting with some detectives. We're planning a strategy on a case we're working. The second plane struck. I immediately got up out of my scene. I said, fellas, I'm going to holler at y'all later. I got to go. And I actually turned my siren on and got back downtown because I knew because of my job, this was going to be serious. I didn't realize that a month later, it was going to get even more serious for the postal inspectors because of anthrax. And I was mad, see? And I told my boss after the anthrax struck, because one inspector we had, he came very close to death. Then anthrax got him and he lost an enormous amount of weight. And we, most of us thought he was going to die, but he survived and he got his weight back after about two, three years. But that really upset me to see him wither away like that. And uh, and the postal employees that got actually killed, you probably remember them. So I was mad. So I went to my boss and I said, look, all of this identity theft and credit card theft and all of this stuff, robberies, because I work postal robberies, too. I said, all of that, that's 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 great. But I want to do something about this whole 9-11 and this anthrax thing. So they transferred me within days to the prohibitive male investigative unit. And that's. That was good. I got bomb training and uh, anthrax detection training, all of that. But after a while, they asked me, would I consider a position on the uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force with the FBI, where you investigate terrorism with other task force officers from any number of agencies? And I was there for over two years and uh, had some really good cases. Uh, and I thought I was going to retire there. 
But my job, uh, my boss, rather, from the postal inspector side called me up one day and said, hey, we're expanding this dangerous mail investigations. If you're interested, I'll get you uh, I'll get you in right now. You get the first uh, right of refusal. So I asked him a few questions like, do I get a car? Because FBI had a car. <laughs> he said, oh, yeah. He said, all of that bomb equipment and everything is going to go in your car. All of that detection equipment go in your car. You'll be a first responder. You know, and I said, well, where will I be assigned? And he told me Edison, New Jersey, which was far closer to where I lived than the FBI in Newark. So I said, man, where do I sign? I'm ready. And, uh, you know, I left my my buds at the bureau, but uh, I, I finished my career doing bomb and anthrax investigations. And I loved it primarily because I was and I did this at the FBI, too. I was actually allowing people who didn't even know me the opportunity to get a good night's sleep because I was doing that thing overnight. I'm troubleshooting. I'm checking things to make sure that it's not, you know, it's not dangerous. I got so many calls about ticking packages and some of those packages, I'm going to leave it at this because I'm a preacher now, Carl. Some of those ticking patches, uh, packages were very interesting, if you know what I mean. They did not include <laughs> they some other items. That's all I'm going to say, okay? <laughs> so, Tick, ticking or vibrating? Uh, both of those, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, you, you can say vibrating because they both achieved the same. Uh, I'm going too far now. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> So, hilarious man what well, was it was there ever uh was there ever an incident or a case you know obviously working in those capacities where you know you thought this is it you know like i mean every single time you know i can't even imagine right. the pressure let alone the anxiety or having to remain calm in those situations like i, I right. you know i don't even know what that, that kind of training is like but um it, it was it was great but was it there was ever, great training. Was there ever, uh, you know, a situation or, you know, a time where you thought, oh, this this might be, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yes. Uh, this, this might be the one. There was one and it was kind of weird, but I, I, I want to uh, tell you what happened. It was a Saturday afternoon and I get a call from my partner who has his own truck, his own equipment. And normally we handle these things by ourselves. But he told me I had to go meet him at a a mail processing center because there was something really strange there. And he explained it to me and I'll, I'll give it to you like this. You and everybody else in America was watching TV during the time of those anthrax attacks. And you probably saw those envelopes that more times than you can shake a stick at. And you probably remember them. Well, my partner called me because those envelopes, and this is like, I don't know, this this had to be like several years after uh, October of uh, 2001 when that occurred. But the same envelopes were found in the mail stream. So I'm like very nervous about this. I'm like, oh boy, is this a copycat? You know, there are copycats out there. They, they're duplicating all kinds of atrocious things, you know? So I'm like, oh boy. So I called the police and everything, told them don't get close, but we need them there just in case, you know, to, to handle perimeter stuff. We were going in and we're examining these envelopes. We got all of this equipment on, man, you know, and all we, all our detection stuff is reading negative, but we're like, why would somebody do this? We did an investigation right there on the spot because we want to run this down as quickly as possible. And it turned out it was a TV program that will remain nameless that was duplicating this to determine if it would get detected in the mail stream. 
and it was all types of disruption and they got fined. Uh, they were doing a documentary and they got fined for doing that because it was all kinds of disruption. Uh, not to mention, I think I had hair before that day too. You know, uh, it, it was, it was pretty, uh, intense, you know, <laughs> but the postal employees working in that facility were very upset. But that's one thing I liked about that job. I was always a, I was a servant to my fellow postal workers and they're not used to that kind of posture from an inspector. And I like the fact that I was always, in addition to the common, uh, the regular citizens, to put my fellow postal employees at ease. I love that part of my job at the end of my career where I just did dangerous mail investigation. That included narcotics and everything. Yeah, yeah, back in the day, back in the day, you could pretty much send anything to the mail. Absolutely. Even some things you weren't supposed to send, people got away with it because there was so much volume. You know, it's easy for certain things to get overlooked. So let me ask you this. Coming up, coming up through the ranks, right? (laughs) How often did you have to deal with... um, Racist. I dealt with it uh, not more than anyone else, I don't think, any other uh, black agents, uh, law enforcement officers. But you're going to have racism. It, it, it's it's a reality of existence. And some of the things being addressed today, I'm glad for that because it's going to like curtail this kind of thing. I don't know if it will ever be eliminated, but it's going to curtail. But I'll tell you, I've always had the same posture, Carl. Even when I was in the Army, and it was very racist. I mean, I did when I graduated from basic training in the army. I I was in Fort McClellan, Alabama. Okay, this is 1975, and there were incidents there, and I ended up in Fort Riley, Kansas. And I'm gonna get to your question. And uh, there were inc- there was a major incident of which I was the center at Fort Riley, Kansas. Wow. But in my job as an inspector, uh, the inspection service by that time, 1987 and beyond had a culture that frowned on racism, but there was still that old boy network in place and pockets, you know, and uh, I did experience some things I had um, and I observed some things. I even observed, we had a, a huge support staff pool, which is or the ladies that did the administrative secretarial thing. I witnessed some unfair treatment there, you know, uh, And um, like I said, I always had a certain posture on racism. I taught all of my kids this posture, and I even tried to encourage those who have been mistreated to use the same posture. And that's simply this. And my kids have embraced this, all of them. Racism is probably going to be here a long time, if not for all of our existence. The way to deal with it is be the best, always. And you won't be denied. You might be denied uh, uh, individual episodes, but ultimately you will not be denied because you're the best. And my kids have embraced that. And I tried to encourage others to do that. But on the street, especially working with other agencies, I absolutely experienced some things were pretty bad. I even had one incident where I was with somebody in a car and we picked up this uh, young cat from the street. And I was like floored at the language this guy was using, you know, I mean, inward everything, you know, I'm, I'm like shocked to the point where like, I don't know what to say. I'm shocked. But what I did, I knew that guy went to his office early in the morning, but like several hours early before everybody else, I showed up the next morning and I'm just going to say this. We had a little uh, conversation and that never happened again. 
had a come to Jesus moment. Absolutely. Come to Jesus. <laughs> yes. yes, indeed. Excuse um, but me, I, I boy, may I talk to you <laughs> for you can a sing second? Too, bro. I need you in my choir. But there was Gonna another moment like that. Holla at you. All right now. <laughs> That's where I was. That's where I was. Yes. I have another story I want to share, if I may, if I have, mm-hmm. we have time. Uh, I, I worked with a guy for a long time. Uh, he was a, a Puerto Rican brother. He grew up in the Bronx. Tough guy, too, man. Really tough. You know, I love working with this guy, even though his previous partner before me wasn't his partner anymore because he got shot in the line of duty. And this guy, my partner, uh, he was always in the mix. But I liked being in the mix. And we had a case once where he he had a case, actually. It was his case. I was helping him. We arrested a guy, a black guy. We put him in handcuffs, but it was very late at night. And since it's so late, believe it or not, you can't, in those days at least, you couldn't take your prisoner to the federal lockup. You had to take him to the NYPD. So we show up at the NYPD, and this huge uh, uniform guy is there. And I could tell he's wearing a wig, right? But he's huge. I wouldn't dare say anything to him. I'm not even going to snicker around this brother because this guy's like 6'4". He's like 250. And you can tell, you know, he's working out, you know. And, you know, I thought he was sipping on the juice. You know, he's doing a little steroid thing, right? Because he's like, his chest is out like that. And I'm like, okay, all right. But I ain't saying nothing bad. But anyway, he looks at us and he goes, hey, man, you guys are federal, man. Why are you bringing this guy in here? Is he a homosexual or something? But he didn't say homosexual. He used the other word that we no longer use, the profanity word. He said, is he, you know, one of those like that? And the guy, he's in handcuffs in the front. You could do that in those days. He looked at the cop and he says, are you a homosexual? And Carl, this guy, this big goon, and our guy wasn't that big at all, not not by any stretch. He grabs the guy by the handcuffs in the front and slams him down to the floor. It hurt me. I was hurting. And my partner was hurting. Again, we're shocked. We're like, this, we're in this guy's house. What do we say? We just had to make sure our prisoner was okay, and we turned him over to him. So on the way home, we're talking about this, and we're like, we can't let this roll. So when we pick up our prisoner in the morning to take him to the federal courthouse, we apologize to him and we tell him, hey, man, we're going to we're going to take this to the next step. What do you want to do? And he said, no, no, no. He said, I don't want to go through all of that. He said, you guys were gentlemen to me. I don't want to do that. Just just let it go. All right. So we let it go. Now, check this out. About a year and a half later, I have a prisoner that I'm bringing to the lockup NYPD that I had picked up, right? And I'm bringing him to the lockup and I'm by myself. The guy sitting behind with his back to me, a uniform guy at a typewriter. He looks like he weighs about 120 pounds. And when he turns around, it's that same cop, the one who was big. But now there's this little skinny, puny, like weasel kind of guy sitting behind the typewriter. And he was trying to avoid me because he remembered me. And I'm like, yo, man, I know you like that. And he goes, no, I don't think so. He's very nervous. So I don't think, I said, yeah, man. I said, I brought a prisoner in here. You, you you, actually got rough with him and you took him down on the floor about a year, year and a half ago. You remember that? He's like, no, no, no. I said, yeah, man, because you were a big dude then. I said, you know, what happened? And he said, oh, I hurt my back, you know. And I'm like, I didn't say it out loud in my mind. I'm thinking, you didn't hurt your back. Your doctor told you to stop taking those steroids, you know. 
And man, if I could have called my man up, <laughs> you know, that he had taken to the ground because this guy went from like a big goon to like nothing. And it, it, I thought that was interesting. And that's look, there is such a thing as in, in Christianity, you know, we call it uh, uh, reaping what you sow. I've heard it called karma, poetic justice, poetic justice by any name. That's what occurred in this case, because this brother was completely different. He was not like that dude who got rough with our prisoner that night. So, so that that was a, a, a interesting one. We have a lot of discussions on the show. Um, you know, the purpose of the show is to try to bridge the gap between law enforcement, black and brown community, um, without going into any rhetoric or any amount of examples in history. We still see common occurrence today where black and brown people are being mistreated, treated as less than at an alarming high rate. Having been a member of several different uh, law enforcement agencies, what's the answer? What is the solution? What are the steps towards, towards a positive solution, in your opinion, to change this broken, well, I guess this, no, I wouldn't say broken system, because the system would have to include you and then fail to be broken to begin with. Um, what's, the, what's the answer? What's the solution? I'm, I'm glad you asked that because that's uh, that's a passionate topic for me, and uh, I'm I'm going to give you an opinion, but also a perspective. I'm a, I've been a member sure. for a long time uh, uh, on on the uh, in the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, Noble, and uh, I work now in the New Jersey chapter in the Public Relations Division. Noble National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives represents. Uh, police officers of and uh, agents from many uh, various agencies of color. And these are largely people who uh, have come up through the ranks. We, Noble, we have several programs, particularly a program we call The Law and Your Community, where we not only uh, educate people in the community and anybody in the community is welcome to contact on this. We not only educate people in the community regarding their rights, but we also uh, educate them regarding their interactive demeanor with law enforcement. And I want to give you a quick perspective on that particular issue, because we all have rights. We got that, you know, we got Fourth Amendment rights against search and seizure. We got all kinds of other rights. And the police are not permitted to talk to you and treat you any old kind of way. However, even more important than our rights are our lives. And what I'm trying to uh, share, and I share this with everybody who will listen, I'm trying to share with people a, a slightly different perspective, like, hey, let's not do anything to inflame the the uh, illegitimate, the the crazy passions that some of these officers might have. They want to see ID, show it to them. You know, if, you know, if, unless, unless you don't want to show it to them because you got something, a reason why you don't want to show it to them, then you stay within your rights. But we don't want people to inflame. I don't want people to inflame uh, these passions uh, or this guy's having a bad day. But we still got to deal with it. So how do we deal with it? under that kind of scenario. You don't, you want to cooperate with the police, but how you, you still got to deal with it. This guy treated you badly. I'm trying to get people in the community uh, 
to be the watchdogs because these kids who are confronted by the police in these awful scenarios like the George Floyds and the, the Ferguson's, all these awful scenarios, you know them all. Tamir Rice, unfortunately, he didn't even have a chance, but that's another story. We have to have, community people have to take a stand now. We got to deal with this. These kids have to have the confidence to know that I can act okay with this officer because if he does something wrong, I'm going to tell Carl Payne. I'm going to tell Ed Steed and they're going to do something about it. That And I think the police would fear that a lot more than one individual saying, oh, I'm not showing you my ID. You know, and we still got to deal with those issues. Don't get me wrong. Those issues have to be dealt so, with. So but what I does that look black, like? More cooperative, but knowing that you got the upper hand, you're in control. No, no, the police no, no. What, what, I'm, what I'm asking is, what does it look like? What is that? So so the organizations that you were talking about, I'm saying, is that is that what the, the police need to be aware of? You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's almost like a, a it's almost like when you you have a car, right? So it's almost right. like it's almost like name dropping, right? So what, how does that work? Is what I'm saying, right? How do we establish that? What does that look like to be able to say, hey, hey, officer, uh, jerk off? I'm right. a part of such right. and such, or I'm gonna right. call such and such, you know, to right. make him. Because at the end of the day, that's only one side of it. That's only one part of it. Because absolutely, the the you know you know it's one it's it's almost like saying, yeah, I know he's a bully, I know he's calling you names, just ignore it. And it's like, yeah, but the bully got to be dealt with. The I bully agree totally. Has to be dealt with right. because if he wasn't acting like that to begin with then none of this would be a conversation. The bully doesn't get a walk. The bully will indeed get dealt with. I just want the people, the the, the citizens, these young black boys and girls to get home safely. No, I mean, you, you made a good point. Issue. You made a good point when yeah. you said that there's there's rights and then there's, did you make it home? You know? Right. And that, but exactly. and, and see, that's what, see, and, and, and I think for me, the, the, the for me, that is more important, but it starts with the bully because that's the Definitely. problem. You know, Definitely for me, the problem. For me, for me, it's got to start with the bully, you know? And right. I remember as a kid, I remember as a kid, you know, being a shy kid and being, being bullied, you know, and, you know, and having to face, having to actually deal with that. And if I never right. dealt with that, you know, then, you know, you know what I mean? Like, who, who knows? Okay. Right. But it, it, it carry over in all kinds of ways you couldn't yeah. anticipate. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But and, and so my point being, at the end of the day, like you said, yeah, so like, you know, there has to be something established that that makes any new bullies afraid of bullying. But at this, you know, you know, and, and, and that's the thing we got to figure out what that looks like. What is that? And what, what are we the steps need an that organizational we take? structure? Yeah. To, to, to handle this. I handle it individually. Uh, I'm dealing mm-hmm. with a scenario right now here in New Jersey uh, that involved uh, some bullying and the, the situation I'm dealing with now, it was resolved, but it was resolved by the first police officer on the scene. The first five, another two or three came and changed everything and mucked it up, man. They just messed it up. So I'm going to be dealing with that. But we need people to deal with that. And I'll tell you, my wife said to me once uh, that she was really concerned about our sons. uh, Our sons are 25, uh, 32, and 37. And uh, I said I wasn't as concerned because I always told them this. And this would bring me to my point. I always said, listen, you do 
within reason, within reason, what the police tell you to do. And if there's an issue, you let me know. It'll be my problem after that, not yours. That's we have to arm all of our black boys and girls with that type of demeanor. Like, hey, I'm not worried because like you said, Carl, I'm, I'm backed by the such and such organization. We got to put those organizations in place. I know I'm not the only individual doing this kind of thing, but we need we need some type of organizational structure that will deal with these guys swiftly, the bullies swiftly and let the kids know like, hey, we're cool. We're going to back you up. I got your back, man. You're not by yourself, you know, and yeah, we got to we need that badly. Well, tell the people where they can find you, other people where you know, if, if they're yes. looking to, to check on you, you know, to find out what you're doing next, um, where they can find you. Yes. Well, I, I actually have a church. It's called Safe Haven Christian Fellowship. Uh, we're, we're online, safehavenchristianfellowship.org. Uh, that, that actually tells everything. But uh, we also have a phone number that I'm going to give everyone, if that's OK with you. It's uh, 732-641-641. 2429-732-641-2429. And feel free. We, we, we're happy to receive your calls. You know, I mean, if it's a bad, Carl, I'm, I'm sorry, let me say this. If it's a bad situation, of course, we're not happy, but I know it's going to be dealt with. Even in our church, we even had a young man, Terrence Collange, killed uh, two years ago. Uh, in 2019, and he was killed in a white area by a, a young white guy that he knew. But when the guy killed him, he told the police that Terrence had showed up with the gun. And I knew that not to be true because he was a member of my church. I know him. Terrence showed up with the gun and he shot him after wrestling away from him. Once the police did an investigation and it took them a minute to get to doing an investigation. At first, they took this guy's word for it. But with pressure from us, they finally did an investigation and found out that the complete opposite was true. And that young white guy has been in jail ever since. And I think that kind of pressure is needed to advocate for our community people. We need that. So, yes, if anybody calls me, uh, please, please do call me. Mm -hmm. For those of you who are listening out there, uh, you know, we well, first of all, we applaud you. We we appreciate you for for providing these kind of services for for you know um, being on the front lines in the way that you are. And so, for those who are listening, uh, you know, is it's not just within the city of Jersey, right? It can be right. whatever, because I'm sure that there's a network and an outreach that spans beyond the Jersey borders. So um, we thank you and applaud you, applaud you for that. Uh, I asked this of my guests, if there was anybody from your past that you could arrest, who would it be and why? Wow, that's a tough one. Hmm. I think, believe it or not, there was a police officer. <laughs> there you go. In my neighborhood where I grew up in Newark that he, he was an alcoholic. That nothing against that. You know, I'm a recovering uh, alcoholic myself, but he was an alcoholic and he was active and he would come around. And he would be drunk. And there were times I can think of two or three times where my parents and I would be sitting outside and sometimes my younger brother, and he would make us go in the house for no reason. Just it's time for you to go in the house. But I would arrest that dude if I could. Awesome. <laughs> you know? so. What was your favorite law enforcement show growing up? Oh, that would have to be uh, you. You probably never heard of this show. It's an old black and white show. 
uh, called NYPD with uh, Robert Hooks. Oh, you know it? And Jack yeah. Warden, my homeboy from Newark. Yeah. Yeah. I love that show. Yeah. Yeah. That was my favorite. I also like Barney Miller, though. That was funny. Barney Miller was good. Yes. Yes, it was. You know, the spinoff that came from that, right? I did, but you got to refresh my memory. Fish. Right. That's right. Fish. The old Abe Vigoda, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Abe Vigoda, yeah. baby. Yeah, yeah. Fish was a dude. Was that dude. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, last but not least, what are your final thoughts? What would you like to leave the I people with? I, I, I appreciate so much the opportunity to share some things about my job. But at this stage, you know, I'm like, I'm going to be 65 years old in a couple of months. And at this stage, I'm really about service. And I hope people get what I was trying to impart to them, uh, those who are not in law enforcement, even those who are regarding what Noble is doing. Noble is doing some incredible work. And we have chapters throughout this country and uh, they would reach out to me and so I can open up this network to them. But also another thought I want to leave people with is some people have never been exposed to law enforcement like Noble exposes them. And some people probably never heard of postal inspectors until today. These are career opportunities that we'd be happy to discuss with folk. You know, and you can all use that same number. We'll give you the other numbers you need later, but use that same number, 732-641-2429. We want to open this up. We need more because one of the things that's going to help our community resolve some of this, those incredibly awful issues we're facing today is getting more of us in the realm of law enforcement in that as a career field. And there's some great career fields. My job as a postal inspector, many years ago, there was a, a survey taken uh, by, I think it was Forbes magazine, and they found us the 21st most popular job in the nation. And you know what all the postal inspectors were saying? Wow, how can we score so low? Because we love the job. And there's jobs like this that we want to open up to people, all kinds of investigative jobs that some of the people would, would really enjoy. And I'd like to talk to them about it. So, yeah, call me. Well, once again, brother, brother Edward, we we thank you. I applaud you. Thank you thank for you. Uh, joining us and sharing your journey and your knowledge, dropping them gems on us today. Uh, Amen. You, you, I'm, I'm surprised that people don't call. Are you Jamaican? Because you had a lot of jobs. You, you you had a lot of jobs, brother. I did. Yes. I mean, <laughs> crazy. A girlfriend crazy. even who, who was Haitian even quit me because of that. <laughs> See? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, you know what? You're blessed and you're still continuing to pay it forward and being a blessing to others. And, and just got to say thank you. Thank you, brother Edward and Steve I for joining us. I want to say thank team. you. Thank you for doing this. This is a phenomenal program and I'm a fan. Thank you. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Gray. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Red, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.